Well, we're in the second part of our um, lesson on infertility, reproductive technology, and adoption. We're about halfway through. Just kind of a brief overview of where we came from before. We're asking, how do biblical principles help us to evaluate modern reproductive technologies, particularly artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, embryo adoption, and surrogate motherhood? Why does the Bible view adoption so positively? That's the last thing we're looking at. So we're looking at this through the viewpoint of infertility, particularly. It's actually a practical, pastoral sort of um, application. Infertility in the Old and New Testament, so we considered that a feeling of grief and childlessness. So one of the options we have um, is through this, this new technology. And if you look at point B, um, we're seeing the, everything flows from this. Everything I'm saying today flows from these sort of three principles to consider. And you can maybe add five or six more, but I'm, I'm doing these three. Modern medicine in general is morally good, I believe. We should treat the unborn child as a human person from the moment of conception. God intends, number three, that a child should be conceived by a man and woman who are married to each other. And I'm basically saying pastorally, I'm okay proceeding with certain kinds of technology as long as those three principles are protected. And I can, I'm not going to get in anybody's face as a pastor if they want to, as long as they're abiding by those three things. If they're not abiding by, let's say, uh, an embryo as a human being, okay, then, then there needs to be involvement. Um, but I'm okay with most stuff as long as it abides by that. That's where I'm coming from. So look at point C. Some modern reproductive technologies are morally Acceptable. <clears throat> the general category for various medical methods to help people have children is called assisted reproductive technology, abbreviated ART. So I'm going to consider now some specific kinds of modern assisted reproductive technology in light of these three moral principles. And these three principles give us a useful perspective from which we can conclude that some kinds of reproductive technology are morally acceptable and others are not. Just a bit of a review because it's been like a month and a half. All right, so we're going to look at number one first. Just quick, I'll just read it. Artificial insemination by husband. I mean, that husband part is probably being tacked on here from a Christian perspective. It just could just be artificial insemination by a stranger, but this is by husband as Christians are looking at this. The process of artificial insemination by husband does not violate any of the biblical principles named above, I would argue. It simply enables a wife to become pregnant by her husband's sperm when, for some reason, it is physically unlikely or impossible for this to happen through ordinary sexual intercourse. The husband's sperm is first collected and then injected into the wife's cervix or uterus. The child is conceived by and born to a man and a woman who are married to each other. No unborn human person or embryo is destroyed in the process, and the wonderful result is that infertility is overcome for this couple. Number two, in vitro fertilization without disruption of embryos. Abbreviated IVF is the process of joining together a woman's egg, ovum, and a husband's sperm in a laboratory rather than inside a woman's body. What does in vitro mean? Do you remember? In glass. Very interesting. Evangelical Christians differ on the moral acceptability of this procedure. Some evangelicals argue that in vitro fertilization is always morally unacceptable. My own position is that in principle there should be no moral objection to IVF according to scriptural standards as long as no human embryos are destroyed in the process because it's once again simply enabling an infertile husband and wife to have children and thereby overcoming their infertility by means of modern medicine. Someone might object this is not the natural quote-unquote process of conception. This is, this is um, uh, 
yeah, it's not natural. Uh, through sexual intercourse, that God intended, but such an argument must assume a definition of natural that arbitrarily excludes modern medicine uh, from what we consider a part of nature. Um, the laboratory equipment we're using is part of nature. God created it. Uh, medical researchers have skill and technicians and like, just wisdom that God has given to them. Uh, we talked about a woman using a thermometer to take her body temperature every day in order to know when it's best to have intercourse, to conceive a child. Uh, similarly, a husband's use of Viagra or a similar modern medicine to overcome erectile dysfunction. All these are quote-unquote unnatural, <clears throat> but it's not, you know, the, Vi- the Viagra is made from materials that God placed in the natural world, and so it's also part of nature considered in a broad sense. Therefore, there seems to be no valid reason to be to reject in vitro fertilization on the ground that is not part of the natural process that God established for the conception of children. The essential considerations in this issue are all satisfied. Again, modern medicine is used to overcome a disability. No unborn children's lives are destroyed. And the child is conceived by a man and a woman who are married to each other. However, in vitro fertilization is often carried out in ways, in a way that destroys multiple human embryos and therefore wrongly results in the destruction of human life. This happens... Now, hear what I'm saying here. This happens in order to increase the probability of pregnancy. More, to do that, more of the wife's eggs may be fertilized in laboratory equipment than are actually implanted in her womb. In most cases, couples going through in vitro fertilization, where multiple embryos are created, can indicate one of the following options for handling any of the remaining embryos. Number one, freezing or cryopreservation of unimplanted embryos for use by the couple in any future treatment cycles. That's one option. Number two is anonymously donating the embryos for use by other, to uh, other infertile couples. We're going to talk about that in a second. And number three, allowing the embryos to develop in the laboratory until they perish, at which time they are discarded, which is usually within six to eight days of collection. The fertilization of multiple, multiples of eggs uh, is not necessary, however. Uh, technological development of in vitro fertilization has reached the point where if the couple wishes to fertilize only one egg or two, that can be done. You're severely handicapping the process. Your chances of a viable pregnancy to the end have greatly diminished, but you can do that. In such cases where no embryos are destroyed, I think that in vitro fertilization is morally acceptable. Now, John and Paul Feinberg, do you guys know who they are? They're theologians, but they have wrote a book on ethics that's very good, and they argue that IVF is morally unacceptable uh, every time, even when only one egg is fertilized, because the success rate is so low in such cases. Uh, they write this, quote, We believe the embryo is human and a person from conception onward. Our views on the embryo's status lead to our greatest moral objection to IVF, namely its waste and loss of embryonic life. If the success rate of IVF had risen to 95 or even 80%, we would be more sympathetic to it. But IVF technology is currently nowhere near such success rates. We find the loss of, such, of much human life morally unacceptable. Success rates are at best only about 17% when one embryo is used. Too many human lives are lost to think that this is morally acceptable. And I would say I have a lot of respect uh, for the Feinberg's book on ethics. I've been using it in this study class, and I agree that their conclusions are, are, 
often very, very good. I'm following Grudem and, and more than the Feinbergs, but I'm following them too. Uh, but they're, they're great. I find their objection at this point to be significant. I take it seriously. Uh, but in the end, I'm not persuaded by it. And I'm going to tell you why, and then you can counter, you can do a rebuttal. But my response is that fertilizing only a few eggs at a time and then planting these with the hope, the intention that they do survive, is far different from the common practice of in vitro fertilization, where multitudes of eggs are fertilized, and then most of them are intentionally destroyed. In that case, there is willful destruction of human lives. But with the fertilization of only a few eggs at a time, the intent, and I think intent matters, the intent of the doctor and the husband and the wife is that all the fertilized eggs will come, will live and come to normal birth. Therefore, I think that this kind of in vitro fertilization is morally acceptable. This does not mean that couples have an obligation to try in vitro fertilization, only that it's morally acceptable to, a thing to do. Many couples may reason that the process is too expensive for them to afford. Uh, on average, a basic IVF cycle in Canada is about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Others may reason that the likelihood of success for the procedure is so slim that they don't want to embark on such a difficult process. According to the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technologies, the live birth rate per IVF cycle with their own eggs is 54.5% among women younger than 35. 42.0% for those aged 35 to 37, and 26.6% for those aged 38 to 40. The success rate drops to 13.3% in those older than 40, and success in women older than 44 is rare, approximately 3.9%. The book, in my opinion, to read on this subject is by Dr. Megan Best, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. This is the gold standard, Ethics in the Beginning of Human Life. Any question you can possibly think of, with, it, with examples and uh, is in this book. She writes this, just a very interesting stat, I think, that to kind of combat where the Feinbergs are coming from. Uh, we know that even in nature, in nature, a natural process, the embryonic death rate prior to implantation is what? How, how high do you think that is? Naturally, what would be the, na the natural death rate of an embryo prior to implantation in nature? Prior to implantation. So like before fertilization? No, fertilization, but prior to implantation in the wombs wall. It's 75%, which is very high. That correlates, I think, to what you're seeing in the lab, too. It's, it's about the same. Um, another consideration is that a couple may decide that embarking on another pregnancy carries increased risks for the mother's health that are too significant for them to think that they should try IVF. In such cases, also the medical possibility and the moral acceptability of trying in vitro fertilization do not mean that there is any obligation on them to, to use this procedure if they don't want to. Now we're going to get to embryo adoption, but just questions, comments on that. I mean, it's a lot so, to digest so there. So Steinberg's, is there a position basically like, so for IVF, you can take out the embryos from like the woman, I guess? Like, is there a position that it's better to just keep them in your, I'm not wearing this good, but like, your body naturally and then just keep on trying to have kids and that by removing them and putting them in like an IVF lab where the success rates are low that they're saying that that's cool or something. Is that what they're saying? They're saying that the success rate, even if you're looking at just doing one at a time, let's fertilize one egg, let's take sperm and egg, put it together, fertilize, that it's not like 
95% success rate if you do that, that that, because that is a human being, and because the success rate isn't high, like 90%, 85%, that kind of thing, therefore it's kind of a wanton waste of human life as you're sort of experimenting to get the end result you do want. It's too high of a risk. So they're asking for if the, if the technology was better and the success rates were higher. So I was countering that with, in nature, it's 75% um, that it doesn't work out. Um, so, to me, I mean, that, that can be a valid argument. Right? And, that, and that can prick your own conscience, too. And I'm not denying that that can't be the... Look, we want, we want 100% certainty. This is human life. We want 100% certainty. If it wasn't 100%, we're not going to do it. That's fine. I, you know, I'm not going to push against that. But um, you're looking at, I think, intent is very important in this. The intent um, is actually... This is a full... This is going to go to a full pregnancy and live birth. That... That to me says something. The results mean something too, obviously. It's not just, you know, yeah, I intend it to be good, but it's always like it's the 1% success rate or something. That would be too much for me. But do you, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's the stat. It's the, it's the stat of actually how it's not a 100% success rate. That's what the problem was. Yeah, I don't know, like, how it was about the process. I think I'm just like a little bit. So to take out the embryos, like, is another word for Okay, when you say embryo, you actually mean a fertilized egg. Like, so that's a sperm and egg that's come together. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that happens in glass, okay, in vitro. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I want to seek some clarification on the first principle you, you said. Yeah. Here it's written, modern medicine is generally, is, is in general, is morally good. Yeah. But then when you actually were summarizing the first point, you mentioned overcoming a disability, which, I mean, that's like... That's not the same principle, kind of like, or is it? Uh, so the disability of, of being infertile, you mean? Yeah. Like, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. So, so you can overcome that uh, disability by medical procedure. It could be, you, you know, your arm grows back or whatever it might be, but that's what I mean. So, so you're saying this first principle, it's not just in general, modern medicine is a moral good. It's a moral good when it's overcoming a disability is implicit in that. Versus just, hey, we can have babies grow in, I don't know, the laboratory. It's not overcoming a disability. It's just, hey, it's morally good because modern medicine is morally good. Right, yes, yes. Yeah, we talked about that last time, I think, too, where supposedly just the hypothetical and the hypothetical abstract. I'm approaching this from the viewpoint of infertility, so point A. It's not just a a thought experiment. This is actually infertility, people in our congregation who are infertile, whatever it might be, and then how do we think about this? Not can we do it with an artificial womb off to the side here? That kind of thing. That's, that's another topic in a sense. Lots to think through. Um, we're going to keep adding to this embryo adoption. Often during the process of in vitro fertilization, more of a woman's eggs are fertilized in the laboratory than are implanted in her womb. As I already noted, instead of destroying these embryos, some couples decide to freeze them in case they decide to have more children later on. As of 2015, this is a United States figure, it's estimated that there are more than 1 million frozen embryos in storage in the United States alone. Many of them will never be claimed or used by the original parents. What should be done with these embryos? And we would argue as Christians, these are human beings. One possibility is that other couples might adopt the embryos Having, have them implanted in the wife's womb and allow them to grow and be born as normal children. Sometimes these children are called snowflake children. 
While we should not encourage or give approval to the process of creating embryos that will not be used in the first place, once these embryos have been created, they seem to be in a situation very similar to that of orphans. They are very, very young children who have not yet been born and whose parents are no longer taking care of them. Does that follow? I think it does. In this case, the Bible's encouragement, the Bible's encouragement that we should care for orphans, I think, seems applicable. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, James 1.27. If we consider these frozen embryos as orphans who have been abandoned by their parents, and I would, then clearly then it clearly seems morally right for couples to adopt them, bring them to birth, and raise them in their own families as their own adopted children. Now, someone may object that adopting such an embryo and bringing it to birth as a normal child violates our earlier principle that God intends a child to be conceived by a man and woman who are married to each other. What's the difference, though? Conception and adoption. Conception and adoption. Right. This child has already been conceived. Right? And it already exists. Uh, even if the child will not be born to the parents who conceived it, that child will be born to a man and woman who are married to each other, hopefully. And this is a far better result than being destroyed as an embryo, because that's the other option. But, here's the question. Should a single or a divorced woman, say, be allowed by herself to adopt such a frozen embryo and bring him or her to birth and raise him or her as a child. What do you think? Singles, divorced people. Under circumstances, maybe? I don't know. I don't really have like, the yeah. position. That's, that's why these I, classes are good. It's yeah, good. Yeah. I don't think I, as if I came across that, I'd be like, oh, like, I don't know. Like, yeah. if, yeah, maybe she'd been waiting for like 20 years and she wanted to have kids or something to find anyone, or maybe, yeah, she's divorced and wants a child and other things would you I mean I'm not trying to nail you down here would you agree with point three B3 God intends that a child should be conceived by a man and woman who are married to each other so you so you would say if you're just a um, if you're actually looking to go to like a sperm bank or something okay that would if she's a single woman that's wrong but then you're saying would you say that I guess yeah, I, I think Okay. Uh, not the first thing you try, but you know, if, if all else okay. isn't really working out, like yeah. I don't think I really would. It's it's better to have like a man and woman married, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know for whatever their situation yeah. is. Jesse, what do you think? Well, there's good examples of godly women who say like they're single, they're now in their late thirties, early forties, and they are like, hey, I want a mother. And they foster, say, a bunch of teenage girls in their home. Yeah. And that's just a really beautiful example of how to be a mother. Um, it's so, it's, it's a great, I think it's a very gray zone that the woman who believes that she should be doing this, it'd be an interesting conversation to have with her that she really feels drawn to do embryo adoption because you're still kind of choosing to give this, well, yeah, no. 
It is a <laughs> yeah. child's already conceived. Yeah. So. And they're yeah. on they're on ice and they will be destroyed. Like yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty it's 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 not wrong. I don't think okay. I don't think it's a wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's back to what you were saying about to Angela. Would you agree if a single woman or divorced woman were to go to a sperm bank? So I I would personally say there's a difference between you know seeking a sperm from a sperm bank versus mm-hmm. seeking uh, a conceived child already mm-hmm. in an embryo. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my thoughts. Couldn't we make the rounds your last year? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, I would also now, I thought on initially, but now I'm also wondering if there's now a bunch of people who want um, these embryos, like initially adoption, that these are surplus, but now it's more and more people are wanting it. I wonder if this is now creating a market for this. Or now, oh, we see people are wanting these. Let's actually make even more that we can customize it. Now we, you know, like an unintended consequence. Like with adoption, even right now, over, I mean, in Eastern Europe, there's all sorts of stuff where we're going to kidnap these kids that way we can adop- have them adopted in North America. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to, you know, help by adopting a kid who doesn't have to Now you're actually kind of making more orphans, I guess. Yeah. So. Um, This is a difficult question, and there's room for Christians to differ on this. While some might argue that this should not be permitted because being raised in a single-parent household is much more difficult for children, it seems to me that from the child's perspective, it's still much better to grow up in a single-parent household than to die as a discarded embryo or to exist perpetually as a frozen embryo for decades to come. And it won't be perpetual. There's going to come the day where they shut that down. Um, if the society decides, this is, this is rude I'm talking, if the society decides through the political process that it is acceptable for single parents to adopt children once the children are born, and many societies have concluded that that is right, then there seems to be no reason to prohibit a single mother from adopting an unborn child and bringing him or her to birth. So, thoughts on that? I mean, oh, we, we talked about the thoughts, but that's... I, can just, I think if you just confronted this for the first time, you're like, oh, that's, I just had ten things I need to work through. <laughs> so there's a lot here, right? So, four, pre-fertilization genetic screening for genetic diseases. It is now possible to genetically screen a husband prior to fertilization of a woman's egg in vitro fertilization or prior to artificial insemination by the husband. Such screening can determine if certain genetically determined diseases will be passed on from the father to the children. Since the male sperm by itself is not yet a human person, I see no moral objection to this procedure in itself if used to prevent the conception of a child who would likely have a serious genetically transmitted disease. Such screening can now test for cystic fibrosis, heart malformation, hemophilia, Huntington's disease, and sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. However, the same procedure could also be used not just to prevent diseases, but to allow the parents to choose among various types of perfectly healthy children. For example, prior to fertilization, a couple might decide that they want to have a baby boy, and therefore only use sperm that contains a Y chromosome. Or they might decide that they want to have a baby girl, and therefore decide to use sperm that contains no Y chromosome. Future types of selection might include the possibility of choosing the minimum height to which a child will grow, color of eyes or hair, or even IQ levels. What do you think? Is that right? Is it wrong? Neutral? I don't like, I don't like the precedent 
us. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't like the precedent, but you're already choosing. <laughs> like you're already in this state where you're just like, pick one. So you just have to pick one. Is mean, that what's happening? Like mean, are our parents being set in front of, okay, here's a bunch of options for you. Which one do you want to pick? Yes. So why is it wrong to, if you're in that position, to just like I understand the precedent is wrong, like you're choosing what child you think would be better than another child, but you're also just choosing one. So, are you going to choose a child with a lesser intellect? Two that has not already existed, hmm? like, oh, is it neutral? You're just trying to make a choice. I don't know. You're already in that position. You put yourself in a weird position. It seems like you're kind of already kind of come down a bit of a slippery slope. And yeah. I think now we're kind of uncovering where it's now our moral intuition is kind of changing. Where we're at. And I think this is why I think some of the principles here I would maybe like add to them and tighten them a bit. Mm -hmm. I think we're now seeing is this what we should be doing? We've now put ourselves in a weird yeah. position. Yeah, like well, I mean, a, a couple doesn't have to go through with these choices. They don't want to. You don't have to do genetic testing or genetic screening. Right. You know, you, you don't have to. There's no one says you have to. You know, and if you if you, you know, if you if you see a disposition in your own heart towards something that's idolatrous, you know, then you have to be able to counteract that. I think and like not do these things. So. Well, because the child with hemophilia is still a like, whole beautiful, wonderful human being, just because they have disease, like so. You don't want to get rid of the disease if you could. Yes. You know, it's like, oh, you're less human. Okay, if I could. Exactly. You're missing a hand, but no, I wish you would have a, you know, yeah. good hand this is what Grudem says. He says, while such genetic screening processes do not involve new human life being put to death because fertilization has not yet occurred, you're just looking at the sperm under a microscope, I would seriously question the motives of couples who would seek to make such selections. Uh, these are not cases of attempting to prevent diseases that are a result of the fall and of sin and death coming into the world, but rather are choices among wonderful diversity uh, the wonderful diversity and variety of human persons that would have resulted from God's creation at the beginning, even with no sin or death in the world, especially regarding the matter of sex selection. Does the preference for a boy or a girl reflect some underlying prejudice that girls are better than boys or boys are better than girls? This would be contrary to God's creation of both men and women as wonderful bearers of his image. We see this with abortions in some countries too, where it's like, I want, I only get one child, so I want the boy. It's got to be the boy. Or, you know, Girls don't matter as much, so it's like, well, I don't want boys, boys. So, something to think through. Again, we're not going like, to you know, come to, this is the encyclical of New City Baptist Church. We're moving forward with this direction, but it's just things to think through. And again, pastorally, as I'm your senior pastor at the moment, I'm kind of moving things towards those, those B, the three moral principles. That's where I would be counseling, advising, and bringing in church discipline if it were to go beyond certain things too. Um, D, other modern reproductive technologies that are morally unacceptable. The same three moral principles apply here. Um, number one, in vitro fertilization with selective reduction. In many uses of in, in vitro fertilization, numerous eggs are fertilized, and the doctor chooses the one or possibly two embryos that look most likely to survive. The doctor implants those embryos in the woman's womb and then destroys the others. 
But this is the destruction of human life and should be considered, therefore, morally unacceptable. This process is often accompanied by pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD. This is the most commonly used genetic screening for, diseases, for disease in the embryo and is done around five to seven days after fertilization. One cell, or sometimes two, is removed from the embryo conceived by in vitro fertilization prior to implanting the embryo into the mother. Since this cell is like all the others in the child's body, it contains the entire genetic complement of that individual, a combination of both the mother's and father's genomes, one of each gene from each parent. Just as the, any living person, child or adult, can be genetically tested using a cell from that person, typically done through a swab from the mouth collecting saliva that contains cells, so this cell from the embryo can be tested prior to the embryo's implantation in the mother's womb. Therefore, a decision can be made whether or not to implant the embryo based on its genetic makeup. But this procedure leads to the destruction of the embryos that are not implanted, which is the destruction of human life, therefore it's not morally acceptable. In addition, this procedure can easily be adapted to promote a form of eugenics, the belief that only those who are desirable should be allowed to live. Similar to in vitro fertilization with selective reduction is IVF with multi-fetal pregnancy reduction. In this case, several fertilized eggs are implanted in a woman's womb, and after a certain period of time, the one or two unborn children that looks the strongest and healthiest are allowed to survive, while the others are destroyed. This too is a form of abortion and is not morally acceptable. I think we'd all be in on the same page on that one. Um, artificial, number two, artificial insemination by donor, AID. Artificial insemination with the sperm of a man who is not the husband is called artificial insemination by donor, abbreviated AID. While some uh, ethicists believe this is morally acceptable in certain cases, it doesn't seem to be so to me. It oversteps the boundaries of the pattern of laws that God established in Scripture, which always sought to guarantee that a child would be conceived by a man and a woman who are married to each other. But in this case, the child is conceived by a man and a woman who are not married to each other. Similarly, the use of AID by a woman in a lesbian relationship in order to bear a child is a violation of that same principle. Getting into something very interesting, very practical too, surrogate motherhood. Sometimes a married woman who is physically unable to carry and bear children herself will reach an agreement with another woman who agrees to be impregnated with the original couple's embryo and carry the child to term. This could involve in vitro fertilization using both the egg and the sperm of the married couple or it could involve artificial insemination by the donor using the husband's sperm but the surrogate mother's egg, or through an embryo transfer. Some of those arrangements seem to me to violate God's intention that children should be conceived by man and a woman who are married to each other. The worst offender on this list is artificial insemination by donor, using the husband's sperm but the surrogate mother's egg. I think there is a serious biblical problem with that. However, using the sperm and egg of the married couple, right? the sperm and the egg of the married couple, or performing an embryo transfer to the surrogate mother, means the married couple conceived the child, but the child is born to another woman. Is that okay? What do you think? And then I'll give you the definitive answer. <laughs> what do you think? Actually, I'm, I'm being facetious when I say that, but... 
I feel like it's the exact same, it would be the exact same logic that we used to talk about like every other option. Like it wasn't conceived by that person or by the, the aid and stuff, so it's fine. Okay. Not ideal, but like, you know, last resort again. <laughs> Jesse? I've, I've actually thought about this a lot and like talked to some people about this because there's some interesting points that make like it's um I think it's one thing to know that you will be able to carry a child but then you still create an embryo and plan to have a surrogate um but there's another situation where potentially the surrogate mother could be the means to rescue embryos that the couple have already created um but maybe those embryos are not working out and then it's found out that the woman cannot carry the baby. And so in an attempt to rescue their own embryos, they uh, find a surrogate mother to bring the embryos that they've already created after they found out that they can't carry it okay. to life. What about that one? <laughs> do, you, do you know about that personally? I, it's just something I was discussing and okay. it was like, huh, like that sounds like a good option. Potentially, um, but that's as someone who I'm not. Um, I've I've become probably over the years quite sympathetic to the whole surrogacy idea in general. Um, Sorry, sympathetic is it? Yeah. Yep. Okay. No, I know it's probably wrong. <laughs> become sympathetic. I'll choose that word. Okay. So yeah. I'd like to know. I I don't like the idea of women being used as as a incubator. What if they what if they volunteer for it? What if they you want what if they want to do it? And they're you're not being paid to do it either. It's also they might want to do it at the start, but then nine months later, this is, I mean, I think we see like yeah. I think it's Ukraine especially where this was affected by the war and they were like trying to get this back up and running and like huge business there. Mm. And then sometimes the mother oh wants to keep the child and no, it's my child, yeah. Litigation, you're bringing lawyers and it's it, yeah. I think I think you're kinda of destroying Kind of creating two different moms, right? There's like the genetic mother versus the mother who's nurturing, and I think that only leads to problems, really. Like, mm -hmm. So maybe just if your own words. mother is young enough to now carry her daughter's baby for her, like like a pre-babysitting grandma. My mom used to joke with us. Yeah, my mom used to joke with me and my sisters, "If you can have a baby, I'll be your surrogate mother." And it was like, "Wow, thanks, mom. That's weird." <laughs> <laughs> There's no business involved. Right, you're bringing incest into this. <laughs> so I, I think that it kind of is problematic to me when I hear that because that it's the, the, there, is a, there is a significant bond. Like we can't, we can't discount the fact that there are biological processes that happens with a mother and her child when she's pregnant with the child. And so that part of that, I mean, it's not purely just a grandmother relationship because that grandmother would basically have that kind of biological process with that child that a mother would have if she was pregnant with that child. So there's that, that added complexity to that relationship which I find very unsettling. And I, it shouldn't be an emotional, um, I, I shouldn't be arguing from an emotional standpoint. But more of a logical. Right, so that's something to consider for you, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she'd be lactating, everything. I mean, it'd be the whole process we go through, and, it's like, and then here goes the baby. Away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
similarly, um, and the problem being is it's the same same kind of argument we have about sex work, right? People mm -hmm. say it's just the body, you just use it mm -hmm. for an economic purpose or for, you know, whatever volunteer purpose you want to use it for. It doesn't really matter, it's just the body, right? The purpose is the body. And that's not biblical view of the body to me. Mm -hmm. Like it's not you can't just sort of Separates or buy from its holistic exactly. design. Yeah. But the person is the body mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. mind and spirit, however you want to slice it up mm -hmm. all together. And to say that I could just use my body as something and separate that out from mm -hmm. my whole entity as a human being is not biblical, not realistic. I think. And then structurally as well, like even when there's the sort of private arrangements, I think it participates in the whole. Um, global economy of surrogacy, which is mm -hmm. extremely morally bad to my mind. Like with the Ukraine budget, there was all those babies who were left behind. Mm -hmm. Like and just they couldn't be collected because they were internationally, you know, international mm -hmm. um, sort of supply chain essentially. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good word. Like India, there's and that's a secret house of pregnant women. Again, you can make so much money from them, much more money you can make anything else. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's so invidious. I'm going to excellent discussion. I'm just going to press on a bit here and I'll give you my point of view on this because there's a couple more things we're going to cover. But <coughs> this whole discussion, my answer is I don't know. That's how I'm going to respond. If a woman volunteers her womb for an infertile couple, that can be a beautiful thing coming out of a very beautiful point of view and heart motivation. In Canada, under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, surrogate mothers cannot be paid a fee or compensated for the act of carrying a baby. That means surrogacy and egg donation in Canada is altruistic. It's not commercialized. However, surrogates can be reimbursed for expenses they incur during the process, about 35 grand. That's what it costs. But you can't make a profit off of it. So if a woman volunteers her womb, for an infertile married man and woman, not a gay couple, then I'd say, maybe, with 100 qualifications and warnings. This is a serious, serious decision. The child would not be born to the woman who is part of the married couple, but to the surrogate mother. Point B3 could have easily read God intends that a child should be conceived and born to a married uh, to a man and woman who are married to each other. And I wonder if we would have batted an eye over the last you know week looking at this. Uh, that's the question: born to. The likely emotional components of this arrangement must be given serious consideration. It is likely that the personal intimacy involved in caring and bearing a child will be so deep that the process of surrogate motherhood runs the danger of putting a huge strain on the marriage. The husband and wife are including a third person in their marriage relationship, at least in some senses. The husband may find himself with an increasing emotional attachment to the woman who is bearing his child. The surrogate mother will likely feel a similar emotional attachment to the man whose child she is bearing. And the deep bond that inevitably develops between a woman and the child she bears will be disrupted and broken only with much heartache and possibly even legal battles. So, my response is I don't know. Maybe with a hundred qualifications, I don't. I don't know. So that'd be really creepy if it was your mother-in-law. 
<laughs> Big time. <laughs> um, time for one more here, cloning. Uh, it is not currently possible for infertile couples to gain a child by cloning, but should this ever become possible, would it be morally acceptable? Modern scientific advances have now made it possible to clone plants. For, exa- for instance, uh, a wood products company can plant an entire field with cloned trees so that every tree has the same shape of branches in the same place on the tree, and every tree grows to an identical height. Cloning has also been used to preserve vanishing varieties of trees. I see no moral objection to this process, and it can make agricultural land more productive and result in better quality of crops or trees. And they're doing this with marijuana, right? Uh, This seems to me to be a legitimate part of subduing the earth, according to Genesis 128, not the marijuana part, though. Another possibility is the cloning not of plants, but of animals. According to the National Human Genome Research Institute, the following animals have been cloned. Cow, sheep, cat, deer, dog, horse, mule, ox, rabbit, rat. A rhesus monkey has been cloned by embryo splitting. Regarding the cloning of human beings, I think Christians should have significant moral objections. Scientists might think that they can create the exact duplicate of a world champion athlete or a scientist with an incredibly high IQ, but it will not simply be this, but it will simply not be the same person in any case. All the life circumstances and experiences that a person goes through from childhood to adulthood could never be the same. Sometimes people become stronger by overcoming hardship, but what would people want clone duplicates of themselves to experience? Why why would you want your clone to experience the same hardships? In addition, the process of producing a human being from cloning, if it ever could be done, is significantly different from God's intention that that the wonderful diversity and variety of the human race be protected, with children being born from a mixture of genetic information from both the father and the mother. This does not happen in cloning. God in his wisdom makes us all different as individuals, not as clones of one another, and in this way protects the uniqueness and value of each human being. Um, Finally, the process of producing a cloned human being, even if it is possible, would once again violate the principle that God intends children to be conceived by a man and woman who are married to each other. For a person who is cloned from one specific human being would not be created from a father and a mother who are married to each other. I conclude that cloning of human beings is morally unacceptable. We're not there yet. I mean, one, maybe one day this is going to have like a, a real resonance with us, whereas it's not just science fiction, you know? I, I, I don't know if you've ever read this, but Ira Levin, he's the guy that wrote Rosemary's Baby. He also wrote a book called The Boys from Brazil, where, this is kind of, kind of stupid, but it's like they, they had Hitler's blood after the war, and then they cloned a whole bunch of Hitlers and they put them into like, tried, they tried to approximate the same kind of like upbringing. So it's like, here's your, your father is a, is a civil servant and blah, blah, blah. And so the, the whole Nazi plot was, you know, then he'll raise up and he'll become the new Fuhrer kind of thing, right? So anyway, I don't know why I even mentioned that. But it's, <laughs> I just was thinking of reading it through. Yeah. It didn't work out in the end. Um, because like the circumstances of H. Roy's life is totally different, you know? Um, adoption, very finally. Adoption is often a wonderful option for childless couples if it is their desire to be parents and something they believe God is calling them to do. And adoption is a very practical way to care for orphans, which is something that James says is part of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, James 1.27. For these reasons, not only many childless couples, but also many Christian couples who already have some naturally born children have decided that God is calling them to adopt one or more additional children. 
Russell Moore's book from 2009, Adopted for Life, has had wide influence in promoting adoption among evangelical families. Questions about anything at all? Well, food for thought, for sure. It's, a, it's an interesting topic, and maybe as things develop in the news, we'll come back to it again with more clarity. But uh, I would just encourage you, kind of from our, our first session that we had, that infertility is, uh, is something that people in your life experience. You yourself may experience it. These are things that you may have to think through, pray through. People in your church are going through experiencing. It's good to have a, a biblical foundation on this. And uh, I think these kind of things too, because it's, it's part of the water that we're swimming in. So, Jessica? Are you going to be discussing adoption next week? Or? No, that's it's it. It's simple. Yeah. Is there a situation where a godly Christian couple, a man and woman, want to adopt that they should not? Uh, I, I, that's, that's, I need I need warning or a question like that. <laughs> Why are you saying this? It's always great. That's it. Well, oh, I, to adopt. There's a whole mm-hmm. process, a bureaucratic process, and you will be evaluated. And if actually by, by a social worker does not feel that you are fit mm-hmm. or unable or economically can't do it or emotionally, it's a very thorough process mm-hmm. and uh, you won't be allowed to. The, your, your options for adoption in Ontario and Canada are international adoption. Um, that's usually a three-year process. There is um, through social services, um, that can be much faster, um, and then there is uh, actually walking alongside the birth mother, and actually there's an agreement reached ahead of time before the birth that you enter into. Those are your options. Um, each one has kind of drawbacks. Each one has like something positive about it, but and uh, yeah, they're all difficult though. <laughs>